Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. Okay, let's talk about today's episode. I'm excited to introduce you to Kimberly Day. She's my guest on the podcast today. And Kimberly, really quickly, is a therapist, a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Washington. And she went to BYU and also Washington State University to do her schooling. And she does focus on working with individuals suffering from betrayal trauma or other types of complex relationship traumas. And she's been trained by APSATS, which is the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. And she's got training in their multidimensional partner trauma model. And Kim is a self-described nerd, as she put it to me, (laughs) and loves graphs and charts and other kinds of things like that. And she has a background in financial planning and and worked with clients for years in helping people do risk analysis and investment return calculations and all kinds of stuff that would make my head explode. But uh, she has a very analytical brain. And I first heard Kim on a podcast some time ago talking about partner abuse in recovery in a very nuanced way that I had not heard it talked about before. And it was really fascinating to me. So I reached out to her and she was gracious enough to come on the podcast and talk with us about it and share with us a model that she's working through and developing. And I think it's a really great model, actually. I've worked for a lot of years with couples that are dealing with recovery issues, rebuilding trust, and also the abuse that inevitably comes when you're dealing with these kinds of really tricky dynamics. And one thing I love about Kim's take on this is that she really did a good job of, in this quadrant she drew up, of breaking down the difference between individuals that have high addiction behaviors, like acting out with pornography and lust and those kinds of things, but have really low abusive attitudes. And then you have the flip side. You have some situations where you've got somebody who has you know, stopped acting out sexually. They're checking all the boxes, if you will. They're not looking at pornography or acting out and crossing those lines, but they still have really abusive attitudes and behaviors, entitlement. And so what you end up seeing in these couples is there's still a lot of suffering going on, even though supposedly he can tell everyone that he's not acting out anymore, which is true, but there's a lot of private acting out in terms of abusive attitudes, beliefs, and treatment in the home of his wife, his family members. And there can be a lot of suffering from that. And so what I find is that, and this is what Kim and I talk about in this episode, is what do we do with these couples? How do we help identify and talk about this in a much more nuanced way so that we can really get people to help and target their treatment a lot better? Because it can be so confusing. Well, my husband's doing really well. He's not acting out, but yet I feel so traumatized all the time. Well, there's a reason for that. And then there are some cases where women tell us that their husband is a really kind person and he's not, you know, he's not abusive and doesn't have any entitlement or attitudes like that, but he still does struggle with pornography, but everybody's telling her that he's a horrible monster and that he needs, he's in denial and all these other things. And, and sometimes that just doesn't match people's experience. And so I think obviously because we're dealing with humans and we're dealing with lots of varied situations, it's helpful to have models and ways of talking about this that 
really can help us target and understand exactly what's going on and where to jump in and offer support. And I think Kim's done a great job with that. And so our discussion today really outlines and talks about her model and also provides some language and discussion around how to best support and understand some of the complexities of couples working through recovery, especially when it involves abusive attitudes. I've uh, included in the show notes a link to download this quadrant that she drew out so that you can look at it if that would help you. It definitely helped me to see how it's broken down and how she's organized it. Okay, so let's jump in to my interview with Kimberly Day. Well, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. Kim, it's so good to have you here with us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's it's nice to finally talk to you um, in person. I I was thinking back about uh, where I first was introduced to your work, which was on the uh, Worth Podcast, and a client actually had brought it to me and said, you know, you really need to listen to this. It's been super helpful to me. And um, I have a lot of clients that recommend stuff to me and I'll, I'll start to listen, but I, and sometimes I'm like, okay, like I kind of get the idea, but I was so captivated by what you were sharing that I stayed with it the whole time and then reached out to you (laughs) because I just felt like it was, it was answering a lot of questions that I had and putting words to things around this topic that um, I felt like really represented my experience clinically uh, with the clients that I've worked with and, and tried to help around these issues, specifically around this this topic around abuse in marriage and recovery. And I think that this is a, obviously, anytime we talk about the word abuse, um, boy, like the feelers go up, it's loaded and it should be, right? It's, it's a very serious thing that uh, can jeopardize people's lives, their safety, and at the same time, not all situations are created equal. And and I think as clinicians, we live kind of in nuance all the time. We're working with individuals. Every case is different. And so sometimes it's hard to talk about these things without sounding dismissive of one experience and uh, highlighting another. And so I think when it comes to abuse, uh, it can feel like really treacherous ground trying to talk about something like this without offending people that have really been through extreme things or, um, you know, minimizing somebody else's experience. And so um, I'm really glad that you're here to just deepen this discussion and talk about it with my audience um, and share some of the the work that you're doing and developing to try and really give us a language uh, to really sort out people's experience. So um, that's a long introduction there, but I'd love I'd love to hear from you how this came to be for you in terms of really trying to um, find a new way to talk about this, or maybe a more complete way to talk about uh, women who experience abuse in their intimate relationships, especially around addiction and betrayal. Yeah, thank you. And first of all, I'm I'm honored by by your words and uh, thrilled also to hear that it was meaningful to to a woman out there, to someone else that it meant enough that they, they forwarded on to you. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. That, that was thrilling to hear. Um, and yeah, and really that's where this came out of is, is my work with, with women and listening to, to hundreds and many, many hundreds of hours of stories um, of, of brave women detailing their experience and specifically with what we as you know, clinicians tend to label betrayal trauma and recognizing or feeling more that there was a dimension to 
it that we were missing, that we didn't have a language around. Um, and just in differentiating between some stories and other stories, um, there were there were some stories where there was a lot more anger, there was a lot more control and manipulation. There was a lot more targeted retaliation towards a woman when she was trying to set boundaries right um or trying to stand up for herself in some case and and others um there there was not that so much and it 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 didn't have to do with the acting out component of of what we typically conceptualize as betrayal trauma relating to um a spouse and I apologize if I slip into talking about a husband as the addicted partner and the wife as the betrayed partner, because it certainly can be the other way around. But um, just for ease of language, I might slip into talking about if we, if you have a, a husband acting out um, and the wife, her experience of betrayal trauma, we typically conceptualize, at least as clinicians, um, the betrayal around him acting out. And uh, how he's acting out, uh, how frequently, how compulsive, how much lying is there involved in that, how much deception, how much of this uh, kind of a second life has he created in secret outside of her awareness. And absolutely, certainly there's a lot of that. It, that is that is betrayal trauma, and that's how we understand it. But what I was seeing is a lot of the turmoil and even the trauma wasn't related just to a spouse who's acting out outside of the marriage, but the way he was acting within the marriage right. with, toward her. And we didn't, we didn't look at that component as, at least in my sense, as completely of how does he interact towards the wife or in, in the other situation, how does a acting out wife act towards her husband? But um, we can just talk about husbands and wives the way you are, okay. just for simplicity. Thank you. Yeah, Thank I think you. It, we'll just we'll just go there, and people can uh, transpose it if they need to. <laughs> if they need to. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but you know, in some cases, I was seeing men who were acting out pretty extremely with a, a very involved secret life, but they were relatively soft and gentle towards their wife at home. Now there was there was all sorts of lies and there was all sorts of um maneuvers to keep that life hidden um and so there was absolutely level deep betrayal trauma um but there wasn't an aggressiveness or a um as much entitlement or demands or abusive attitudes towards the wife and in other cases maybe the acting out was relatively minor in comparison, or very often, maybe it had been in the past, they supposedly had recovered or had been, they'd been and accomplished a degree of sobriety, mm-hmm. but there was still this hostility, this right. um, entitlement, these demands, this um, this uncomfortable feeling for the, the wife in the experience, uh, in the marriage, um, and she didn't have words to talk about. Um, how, what she was experiencing from him. And I think many women, if not most, have the tendency to, when there is these, this uh, coldness or callousness or even 
you know, abusive um, attitudes towards her, they and they, they have identified pornography or some other acting out behavior, all issues with the marriage, all um, problems that they see, they, they kind of pinpoint on the addiction. Uh, have you noticed that? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. And so what, what one of the problems that creates is if he can eliminate the addiction as an excuse, it becomes a way that he can gaslight her to say, look, I've taken care of it. I'm not acting out. I'm not, I haven't viewed pornography for six months or a year or however long. And you still have problems with me. You there, you know, and therefore our marriage issues are yours. Right. You have created all these problems. This is on you. And it becomes really confusing to her because in her gut, she feels like there's something wrong. This is not right. And yet I don't have a way to talk about it. I can just say, I don't feel like the, there's, that things are resolved yet. But she doesn't know exactly why she feels that way. Um, and so that's why I've tried to create this model to add a different, uh, an additional dimension to our our concept and our language of trauma that a wife experiences when she's married to an addicted spouse. Yeah, I love that. And, and the way you the way you've broken it down, all these different scenarios, I've I've seen that, and that's part of where you know it just didn't sit right to say like you know every situation is abuse or or it's not right. Like right. to go to these kind of two extremes and sort of stay in this this uh, polarization. Because I think there's more going on, and like you said, um, abusive attitudes, and obviously abusive behaviors, but abusive attitudes mm-hmm. and beliefs, to me, are are as more da- as damaging or more damaging than some of the acting out for for a lot of these women, where they're just like, you know, what I can get over the fact that he, you know, occasionally looks at naked women, like I don't love that, and it's hurtful. But the way he treats me every single day or what he believes about me or the entitlement that I'm experiencing is, you know, eating me from the inside out. Like, it's just awful. And yes. we have we have to address that and be able to have a language to talk about all the different levels and what people are experiencing. So women can get to safety ultimately and relationships can, can you know, have a chance at healing if that becomes the priority. And that's where I think, you know, you talking through this stuff gives women at least a place to start and say, okay, what do I want to do with this? Uh, what is this? Yeah. yeah. Very much so. So what I, and I'm a numbers kind of gal. I'm kind of a graph, <laughs> like, let me visualize it and picture it. Yeah. And I think this is where this came out of is help me to, you know, kind of put myself on the map. Uh, because I have my own experience with this as well, you know, but as, as I've worked with many, many women, um, I think sometimes we just need an anchor to kind of yeah. see where do we, where is our experience in relation to others? Yeah, Because exactly. we just know our own. And so in my mind, I've created um, kind of a, a graphical model or way of graphing um, where where a huge variety of experience can land when we're dealing with a woman or a couple who are experiencing sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. All right. Uh, If you're okay with it, Jeff, I'll just jump into describing the model. Yeah. Is this okay to... Yeah, let's do that. I think that this is a good time to do that. And listeners, if you want to follow along, um, Kim has... 
created a, a visual representation of this, a graph that you can download in, in the show notes. I'll put a link there so you can uh, pause the podcast and go grab that and follow along if, if you're someone that likes to have a visual. Um, it was really helpful for me. So anyway, but yeah, go ahead and do that. And then Kim, yeah, let's jump in. Let's go through it. Great. Okay. Well, um, for those of you who like math or graphs, this will probably resonate with you. Uh, if not, I think it's simple enough. It'll still make sense. So um, if you imagine an XY axis on the, on the Y axis, um, that is, uh, as, as those values increase, we're talking about um, acting out behavior increasing. And that is most everything that we typically conceptualize traditionally as part of the acting out and the compulsion to act out, that someone who's struggling with a, a pornography or a sexual addiction in, uh, um, engages in. So right. it's the actual acting out behavior of how they act out, how often, how intense. Are we talking about just internet pornography? I I have to say, I always hate the word just in I front know. of that because it's, I don't mean in any way to minimize internet right. pornography, but I know. Or, or are we talking about, is there an escalation in that acting out beyond within pornography itself? Maybe the types of pornography are becoming more, um, uh, more destructive or violent, or are we talking about out of pornography, maybe to um, strip clubs or massage parlors or prostitution or there's there's many 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 ways cruising different other sexually acting out types of behaviors we're talking about how frequency the frequency of that the duration we're talking about how involved they are in hiding that how involved they are in the lying um and even to some to some degree even the the way that uh the the blame shifting or the way of um Anything that involves the compulsion to act out and to keep that acting out secret life, a secret life, um, that typically is how we conceptualize um, that, that acting out and, it, and equally the re resulting trauma on the partner is a result of how intense that is. Now, on the x-axis, we have a completely different dimension that we're looking at. Very often, very closely interrelated, but very distinct from what is involved in, in the compulsion or the acting out. And that is, in essence, how um, the, the destructive, maladaptive, or abusive attitudes and beliefs that essentially sink in to the bones of that that addict or that person. And the hard thing is it may not even have initially begun with pornography. They may, these may have been entitled or abusive beliefs that, that a man um, was exposed to early on in childhood that may be pornography reinforced. But what we know about pornography is that it is, it is very um, often very violent, very demeaning towards women um, very it portrays a lot of abusive attitudes and so you take someone who's been involved in pornography since a, a young age most of our men who get involved are exposed in their you know maybe preteens that's not uncommon so they if they are if they have 
been struggling with an addiction for, we may be talking about several decades here. And if an addiction, if it's an addiction, they're probably viewing pornography for upwards of 10 to 15 hours a week. So in a few decades, that's equivalent. If you think of a high school diploma being just what regular learning would happen as a man grows up, that would be equivalent to several PhDs worth of abusive or destructive attitudes, largely, depending on the pornography type, but largely oriented towards women. And so um, few men, if any, are not going to be affected by the, those, those, um, those cultural beliefs that are embedded in the pornography that they're regularly ingesting. Yeah, there's they, so much becomes, teaching going on. It is. Yeah. And we very rarely talk about that teaching component of mm-hmm. what what are men internalizing about as they create their own schemas, their own beliefs about the world around them, their own role and the role of women. So you think of, um, so often we, we think of uh, on that Y-axis again, I'm jumping back to the Y-axis, um, when a man is addicted to pornography, it has such an impact on their own self-image, their own self-concept, their identity. Um, it has a very destructive um, per, uh, impact on how they view themselves in the world. But it also has a very destructive impact on how they view women, how they view specifically their woman, their wife. And so the more they're exposed to that, and depending on each, each man, they're going to start to in, internalize those messages. And that those beliefs um, are not going to go away necessarily with sobriety because it, they, it's soaked into them. It, it becomes part of their learning, part of their worldview. Um, and this is another distinction between that y-axis and that x-axis, where um, whereas we judge sexually acting out for those of us who are clinicians, I, I don't work with addicts, but those who are way better at that, um, they judge acting out based on the man's value system. It starts with what does he believe, what is he doing that is outside his own value system, not a uh, not a superimposed value system based on what his wife thinks he should believe or what his religion thinks he should believe, but what what does the man himself believe to be appropriate? And that's where clinical work starts if you're dealing with somebody who has an addiction is, what are you doing that's outside of your own value system? And right. let's get you back in line with that. And And so when you're working with acting out, you're using his value system to identify what is appropriate, what's not. But on that, on that x-axis, those, those destructive attitudes, those abusive attitudes, we're, we can't use his value system because it's his value system itself that has become warped because of the learning, like you said, Jeff, the learning that has taken place over these, this amount of time. And so he probably, in many instances, he doesn't even believe he's acting inappropriately because he, in, in many instances, what he's doing aligns with what he believes. He's giving his wife the respect he believes that she deserves. The problem is that his standards are faulty. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sees her as less than. 
than she really is. Um, and so there's a degree, another way of distinguishing that y-axis from that x-axis, y-axis from the x-axis is um, in acting out, whether it be pornography, whether it would be acting out sexually, um, usually the process that a man has to engage in is that he has to objectify or dehumanize that image um, to to essentially use it for his own that that image is not a woman and it's not a, a, a person that has a, a family or has a life or has it's it's something to be um, used. So right. there's that objectification component of the image. It can be used for a process um, and that's acting out. But as he gets more and more comfortable with that process of objectification, of of dehumanizing someone who is a at least initially, somebody that's a stranger that he'll, he'll never met, meet, um, it becomes easier and easier to maybe objectify women in general. And then his his wife, in, in certain contexts, often you see this in the bedroom uh, um, initially. It's easier for someone who's struggling with a sex addiction to objectify his wife and give him some permission to use her sexually. And then objecting her more in general. Well, her purpose is to meet my needs. And if she doesn't that do that in whatever way, I'm I'm justified in correcting her or uh, there there are hundreds of ways that this those beliefs, those underlying beliefs will manifest in destructive behavior. And that's where it's hard to pinpoint specific behaviors. These are abusive or these are not or these are acceptable. Um, we're going underneath that to look at what are the beliefs that give rise to all sorts of behaviors that are destructive. And often in this situation, we're not talking about specific incidences of abuse. Often we think of abuse as an incidence, but it's a pattern of destructive, a, a destructive pattern of being with that person. And that's what makes it so hard to pinpoint. It makes it so hard for women to talk about for them to have a language to describe their experience because as they engage with their loved one, their their husband, their spouse, the person that's supposed to be their person, they feel more than they can recognize often or acknowledge or put language to. They feel less than. They feel objectified or they feel invisible. They feel unseen. They feel unvalued and invalidated. Um, and it's that, that pattern, that over a long period of time, can be intensely destructive to her and her own sense of identity. And so she's struggling for, for help, for language to talk about it, for, for relief from the pain that she has a hard time pinpointing. And she, again, so often she ties it to pornography. And it, it's a natural thing. It makes sense. And it very well may be linked to his acting out because again those beliefs often are if not initially um, introduced by pornography they certainly are reinforced Correct. and amplified mm -hmm. by the pornography use let me tell you what's uh, coming up for me as you're sharing this you know i think that a lot of women do not become i mean again clinically what i've seen over the years is there's less of a chance they'll be desensitized to all the sexual acting out behaviors you know, especially when they, there's a discovery and they're like, oh my goodness, all these behaviors, like, look at these, like, I'm not okay with that. And it's sort of like a punch in the face. And 
and all of a sudden it's it's like very clear this can't happen but these attitudes and beliefs that fly under the radar that are just a part of their everyday existence that were going on in many cases long before there was pornography like you said then reinforced by the pornography and then exist long after the pornography or the sexual acting out behaviors have ended and they're never addressed that is long term more corrosive and there's more desensitization um, where she doesn't even know when to scream for help. Yeah. And and that that is more troubling to me um, in terms of how do we talk about that? How do we, right? Because if you come right at it and just say, uh, well, these behaviors are abuse and these aren't, you miss, you miss this, this more subtle uh, mindset, entitlement, like you said, way of being. And so I, I think that when we start to really uncover and expose the attitudes and beliefs and principles that really support abusive attitudes and and behaviors, you start to see it everywhere where it exists. Um, It's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it Uh (laughs) as they say. But I, I agree with you, Kim. I think that this is the danger of, or the risk maybe is a better word, the risk of, having a recovery that's focused only on the sexual acting out behaviors. It's so, it's so important to eliminate those because they're harmful, but it's also incomplete. And we have to stay with it a little bit longer and a little, and stay with it a little bit more thoroughly. So I, I love that you're, that you've organized it this way and, and really broken it out this way so we can have a more in-depth conversation and help women really place themselves on your graph. Yeah, I, I really appreciate what you just brought up, and uh, it was an aha for me, too, that uh, for a woman who is not exposed in her marriage or in her relationship to a lot of these very corrosive, demeaning sort of attitudes, um, and if I'll, I'll take a moment to, to maybe specify what some of those may look like. Sure, that'd be helpful. Um, um, along that spectrum. Uh, often their their attitudes of entitlement, their attitudes of superiority, their attitudes of objectification within the primary relationship, rather than just objectifying images or in the acting out the acts of acting out outside the relationship, and all of that fundamentally leads to kind of a, a, uh, I think well fundamentally a kind of a dehumanization right. of the partner. They're no longer an equal partner. They're no longer fully a human being. And again, that, that sense of um, equality or that mutualness in the relationship is is shaken, if not destroyed, in mm, that. Right. Um, and then as you continue along that, as that get more and more intense or more and more entitled, the um, more devaluing taking place, there's a lot of more, um, excuse me, there's more of the controlling um, and this, this sense, again, this goes along with the entitlement of, I have, I am entitled to control or have more say in, in, and it can be in all sorts of things, in finances, in sexual um, things, in whatever format. And you'll see it in different areas for different couples. They'll have an entitlement, maybe in some areas more predominantly than others. But as you get into that, what your what it becomes the behaviors that rise out of that are more and more easily identified as domestic violence as you progress further and further along 
that that x-axis of abusive or destructive attitudes and beliefs it builds into that that control and power dynamic um and that gives rise to the behaviors that others outside will see as uh this is domestic abuse um i and it seems ironic um but Women who have maybe who are low in that in their relationship where there is a mutuality or a, a common respect that they experience that in their relationship, when they find out that there is this acting out happening, or maybe acting out is higher, that there is this immediate this is this is not right, and there might even be a more extreme reaction initially to this these discoveries because. They have more of a solid foundation in the truth and the reality that what the acting out is not right, not okay, not acceptable. Whereas often there's a deterioration of a woman's ability to set good boundaries, uh, to to feel like she can stand up for herself against acting out yeah. when there's been a long-standing history of this more abusive or destructive attitudes within the relationship. It's just one more thing. Well, yeah, I don't like it, but you know, that's how, that's how men are. If you hear that type of thing, well, that's how it goes. That's just how men are. You know that the woman has started to internalize these, those same beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, that she has been fed by, usually by the spouse. Now, it may come from if she is raised in an environment where there's, um, she may have also got that from her childhood or her family sure. of origin too. But oftentimes, yeah, if you're hearing that from a woman, it's something that she's getting from her primary relationship as well. So there's a lot of work to do, not just in addressing the acting out, but addressing the beliefs that allow both partners to believe that it's not really that big of a deal. Um, and that comes back to that common respect and, and equality in the partnership and seeing each other and honoring each other as, as human beings and as, uh, as mutually um, worthy of, uh, of respect, of love, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really, I'm, what comes to mind for me, Kim, when you're sharing this is I'm thinking of so many cases over the years where, um, the, you know, the relationship that, you know, she was experiencing in the, in the marriage was one where they were serving together in their church, where they were raised, co-parenting their kids in equality, where there was, there was just the experience was that, you know, he was a really nice person, very respectful in the bedroom, very kind and, and deferential to her, you know, needs. And she was trying to be there for him. And there was a lot of influence going back and forth and right, just a, what would seem like an idyllic sort of marriage, but yet he had this secret life with pornography or sexual acting out of some kind. And you're right. Like the, the, the reaction to that discovery and the subsequent healing is so difficult because it's it's less about the acting out behaviors and more about you know who are you really what are your real attitudes do you, are you someone that wants to control me and right and like have power over me because you kept me in the dark like who are you 
versus, like you said, someone who's actively experiencing that level of control and power differential on a regular basis, they're not going to have it. I mean, again, we're generalizing here, but in, most of the time, it's not going to be that strong. And I, I find that the healing for for a lot of women who are in these marriages where when he's in full recovery, her day-to-day experience doesn't look that different with him from when he was active in his addiction, right? Because he's still a nice person. He's still helping out. He's still being a part of things. He's still a partner. And so she's like, I can't tell if like we're better or not because like my experience isn't going from him being a big jerk to all of a sudden being nice. Like he's just a nice person all the time. And I think that instead of blaming her and saying, well, just get over it. Cause look, he's like not doing it anymore. Instead, it really becomes a discussion on helping him really deepen his own accountability for um, keeping her in the dark and what that must've been like for her to like have all of his values and who he is as a person completely called into question I mean, I think that this brings up some really interesting dynamics that I think a lot of yeah. women beat themselves up for and, and struggle with where they're just like, well, so I guess we're good now because he's not doing it, but my life still feels the same. Well, that piece hasn't been addressed yet. That piece hasn't been addressed as far as like what it's like to live with somebody who keeps you in the dark, which, you know, does that have an abusive attitude toward it? That could certainly be argued, right? That like there's definitely some control and some some disrespect there and other things like that, but her experience day to day wouldn't, wouldn't reflect that. So it's, yeah. Yeah. You bring up a really interesting point because yeah, we could definitely argue there was some form of abuse going on. The the lies, the deceit, uh, we could even argue there was, yeah, we could take this a lot of ways, but the, that keeping her in the dark. And like you said, that automatically creates a power differential right. because he knows the truth and she's, she's kept out of it. And so they're, they're no longer equal. And so, yeah, there's, and that all of those conversations need to be had yep. for healing. He needs to be able to recognize the damage he's done. And this is, I mean, we're talking about what kind of traditionally we see in um, and conceptualize with sexual addiction, that compulsive acting out and the hiding out and the betrayal and the hiding of it and the betrayal trauma component of the spouse and them coming back together and where so many of us as clinicians we see so much hope because we see the goodness there of that husband who loves his wife who loves his family who is committed to yeah to them and to 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 doing the right thing and yet he's caught up in this this ugly addiction that um, is to some degree beyond his control and so that's where um a lot of, and I think our our industry in, in working with sex addicts does such a good job at coming in and taking the shame part out of it to the degree po- possible and saying, "I we see you. We see who you are, mm-hmm. you know, husband, father, somebody who's trapped in, in this addiction. Let's help you create a structure in which you can free yourself and you can enjoy the benefits of having a real, you know, a, now, and very really, a more real, more intimate, more uh, healthy connection with your wife. And in that process, you're going to have to acknowledge the damage that you've done to her and help her heal. Because there is trauma there. There is, There was a level or a degree of abuse, but the intent behind it was different when we're talking purely on that Y axis 
than when we were talking about that X axis. Like the intent is more about covering it up and not being discovered and managing the shame versus trying to, you know, basically control someone else or objectify them. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you're... You're highlighting what, that dynamic we we're just talking about. I I would say on our graph it would be high acting out, high on the y axis, and very low on that x axis. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's uh, you know that's one, and it's a very there's a lot of variation within that. Um, but that's a very different different experience than maybe somebody who is um, low on the acting out. Maybe there's some acting out or there has been some acting out, but they're high on the x-axis. Yeah. And yet we tend to group it all together. If you're married to a sex addict, you're going to have this generic experience. And it's so not. No. It's anything but. No, it's not like that. And we, we've got to give people language to describe their experience and clinicians as well to, to really have healthy interventions that validate the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you we're talking about the difference of the impact of the acting out and the behavior within the relationship and the intent. What was the, the intent of the husband was never to control, like you said, in that when he's high on, he, he's acting out, but he's low on those abusive or destructive attitudes. Uh, he's a nice guy in the relationship. There's a warmth. There is, now there's certainly that should, and pretty much always does increase when he gets into real recovery. He's a, a, able to be more present. He's For able sure. to be more empathetic. He's able to be more attuned to her and show her it, and that real remorse. Certainly, there's work to be done always in that. But there, there is a degree, there's less callousness or less coldness or less... Um, demeaning of her within the relationship when those abusive attitudes or those destructive attitudes are low. Right. Um, and one one thing that I've seen a lot is, you know, you'll have a guy that um, in this example that I said, you know, the nice guy who's, you know, her experience is, you know, pre-disclosure, it's pleasant. She's not feeling abused or objectified. And then she learns about this. And then clinically, you know, when I say to him, you know, when I start to describe how, what her experience was like, and I'm reflecting her pain about feeling controlled, feeling kept in the dark, not feeling, being kept in the dark and, and having this experience that feels very abusive to her. It feels like controlling and all these, she's experiencing these things for the first time, this realization that this is what was going on behind the curtain. And it's horrifying and overwhelming to her. I find that in general, these men that do not have, that are low on abusive attitudes and beliefs, they're horrified by it too. They, they, when I present this to them, their their hearts break. They are just devastated that they were caught up in this, that they were doing this. And their accountability is much more swift and immediate and sort of more uh, pronounced where they're not fighting me on it, where they have a real uh, remorse almost instantly when you describe it this way. And it's it's almost like they're like, who was that guy? That's not me. Like they're they're just they feel like it's not. It's like so far from who they are and what they want to be, and they can really separate it almost like kind of with their addiction, and it kind of goes away with that, and they're willing to work on it and look at it. Those conversations I find are much easier to have and much more sort of re- they're resolved a lot quicker, if you will, in terms of getting them back to the 
back to sort of like um, um, a healthier place than really trying to help somebody with a, a really high abusive attitude see what they're doing. And there's not that there's not that kind of aha moment. It's more like like we're like we're kind of just in this uh, debate almost. <laughs> And that's, that's yeah. way harder to work with, which is what she experiences all the time, right? Where she's just trying to like yes. figure it out and talk around it, but being blamed and gaslighted and manipulated. And like those attitudes are so much harder to work with than just revealing to a guy, look, you doing all this and covering all this up and, and keeping her in the dark is really an abusive, hard behavior. Like you really, and they're just like horrified by it. Um, that's also to me a good indicator of where they are. I think that's really powerful what you brought up. So initially there is a a lack of awareness. Absolutely. They don't usually make that connection. No, we have to make it for Uh, them. Yeah. But, but once it is made there, there's a a swiftness to, and a humility in accepting that and, and an abhorrence of Mm -hmm. what they did on behalf of their wife. I can't believe I hurt her. That's that right. way. There, it, it's an easy move into teaching and empathy. It's a natural. Yeah. I, I feel for her automatically now that I have this, this perspective that yes, I was, I, I, there was a lack of awareness, but once that was presented in this way, there's a, a and a swiftness to want, to want to engage in repair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When it's presented to him like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Man, I, I swear, Kim, we could we could just tangent on this stuff all day long. There's so much here. It's so interesting. But I don't want to get lost in the weeds too deeply. Um, I want to be able to kind of walk through and, and stay with, with this. Um, so if I'm pulling you off track. <laughs> Not at all. I really don't have a track. <laughs> okay. I, other than I, I, I really, to me, this was... Well, this is what I was hoping for was a dialogue okay. because I don't have the experience that you do working with addicts and seeing it from the, that lens. And yeah. so this is very invaluable to hear that, that perspective of what I would suspect, but I don't have the clinical experience. Yeah. And I think just this dialogue about this is what, you know, this is what it would look like in, in this, you know, kind of in this little place of the quadrant, this yeah. is often these are some of the common commonalities of how it manifests because truthfully, most couples or most women, they're somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, but by distinguishing, if you're high in this area, low in this area, kind of this is what this is looking for. My hope is that women will start to be able to ha- have concepts or language around identifying what is going on in their situation. And what and and what can they do about it? And that might be a follow up conversation of, okay, once you notice, yeah. once you know this. Um, so I guess to follow up with that, what can you do about that if um, if you find yourself in that situation where you discover mm-hmm. there there's acting out? Ideally, if it's that low low destructive abusive attitudes and beliefs, but there might be. Uh, some extreme acting out. I, sometimes I, I have women where it, it is definitely, it, it is some, it's the acting out is like, I can't even conceptualize how it is possible. This man is capable of doing these things that I've just discovered and in your whole world is shattered. Um, but as they, as they bring 
And as they set boundaries and require, this needs treatment as they they can speak powerfully and assertively that, no, you need to go get help for this. If they connect with somebody like you or a clinician who works with addicts, ideally, um, they will swiftly be able to make connect the dots that they were um, that they were unaware of uh, and be able to uh, maybe not immediately have a full recovery as far as the acting out behavior, but they will um, more swiftly be able to recognize her experience and the damage they have caused and be um, be on board, if you will, with actively being involved in the repair process. That's yeah, what absolutely. we'd hope to see. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think that, you know, her healing, if she stays in the relationship, her healing, um, you know, really depends on his ability to um, it really depends on his ability to drop those abusive attitudes and become a source of peace, become a source of healing for her and the family. Because yeah, if those, if those came as part of the addiction and, 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 you know, he, you know, had some learning there and he's dropping that world and moving away from it, we would expect to see the attitudes as well, go with it and actively work on that. But the safer he can be, the 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 faster it'll accelerate the couple's healing. Absolutely. Um, but like you said, if if we go to this other quadrant, which is you know bottom right, acting out is low, but the abusive attitudes are high. That's a sneaky one. That's a mm-hmm. sneaky one because on the surface, you know, you've got people around him in his social network, or you know, his therapist, or you know, his his church leader, or other people like that that are saying. You know, he's a good dude. Like he's totally like, he's checking off all the boxes, but like her experience is just so um, diminished at home. And and those are the ones that, you know, you want to be able to, to, and of course the acting out high, abusive attitude type. In most cases, those are, those are a little easier to smoke out. You're just kind of like, wow, this is all over the place, right? This is really dangerous. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that those two quadrants we've been talking about, acting out low, but the abusive attitudes high and acting out high and abusive attitudes low, they need a lot of attention. They're 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 areas that I think, um, I think have a lot of nuance to them, and also need need a lot more attention and time, and better questions so that we can get people the right kind of help. I agree. If we can spend a few minutes, kind of dialing in what would commonly be experienced or what of that. Um, abusive attitudes and beliefs high, but acting out maybe a little bit on the lower side. Maybe they're still yeah. acting out on occasion because I think that's where women really need the validation. I yep. see way too many women in that category. Let's spend some time there. They, yeah. Yeah. They don't know what to do. There, there are, There's often a lot of depression. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of invalidation. And I love that you brought up, they may be hearing from their bishop from their friends, from their, you know what? He's fine. Like you're making a mountain out of a molehill. You're not making, it's not a big deal. You know, maybe, yeah, he does pornography every couple months, but who doesn't sort of thing. And and yet again, I think it's uh, women's inclination to, they tie the destructiveness in the relationship to the acting out behavior. Right. And, and I think, Oftentimes, I mean, we even teach that if you can get rid of the acting out, then men 
generally become more, they're able to be more present, they're able to be more compassionate and empathetic and have a healthy relationship. And so they kind of fixate on this acting out action or this behavior of him acting out. And sometimes it's even in the past, like he's been sober for six months or a year, or a few years. Um, and, and there's so much minimization of her experience because she's being told by everybody around her that his acting out or his past acting out is not that unusual. And it's probably her expectations that are faulty. But really, her gut feeling of saying that things are not right in your relationship. You're not enjoying the type of relationship that, that mutual respect, that kindness, that, that tenderness or that, that gentleness. There's a, often there's a very much of a callousness or a, um, there's a, an entitlement that he will manifest in, in, in different areas. Um, it might be in the bedroom. It might be, um, there's just lots of different ways that that could manifest, um, that she will have a hard time identifying really the issue are these patterns, mm-hmm. these destructive patterns. And she almost always, I see them tying it to, um, something like, I, I hear this a lot. Um, for example, he used to do pornography. He's not doing pornography now, but he's still masturbating every once in a while. So that's the problem. He's still on occasion masturbating. and and then the bishop or or the friends or the the husband himself says what is your deal woman there's something wrong with you and it feeds into the gaslighting experience of her that the problems are are in that are they're rooted in her and she can't make sense of that and she starts to question her own reality uh, of maybe this is me maybe i uh, am unrealistic maybe i have too high expectations more often than not, what I see is that she's picking up on things that she doesn't have, those patterns of being subtly demeaned or disrespected, belittled, mm-hmm. objectified, that, um, that her gut tells her, this isn't right. He's not treating you right, but she doesn't have a way to express those patterns or to clearly identify them to herself. Right, right, exactly. And and there's so much second guessing because everybody has sort of promised, and including well-meaning clinicians, have yeah. promised that her problems will go away when he's sober from sexually acting out. Yeah. And and boy, that becomes the target. And when it's not, um, when it's not feeling right for her. She doesn't have a language now to talk about what's happening. And this is why I love this because it's like, oh no, there's a lot, there's a lot of attitudes and beliefs that are still alive. In fact, that are now being used to blame her, right? For feeling like something's not right because now he can take his recovery. A lot of women tell me this. I feel like he's taking what he's learning in recovery and now using it to hurt me. I hear that a lot. And yeah. and that that's that's being driven by these abusive attitudes. Because a guy that a guy that doesn't have these abusive attitudes wouldn't wouldn't turn that back on her, right? If he did have a lapse with pornography or masturbation, he would be devastated by it. 
he would recognize that that's another another right another injury to her and to himself and he would he would be accountable and not blame her for it but someone with abusive attitudes would have that experience would have that lapse and then minimize it and then blame her for being too sensitive and want to dismiss it and would be critical of her for needing to talk about it or wanting to like you know it would just go on and on and on as part of this pattern now that she's the one that's too sensitive that she's unforgiving that she's being rigid and the list goes on absolutely so ladies you're not crazy if that's happening to you you're probably most likely like kim is saying you're experiencing these abusive attitudes and and the more you can understand those the more you can hold your ground internally and externally to say wait a second i don't have to tolerate this i i can i can stand up to it i can co- confront it i don't have to just absorb it and what i would say to women in that situation first of all there's far too many and this is the group that my heart well all everybody in this, my heart goes out to this is this is hard no matter where you are on this graph and we could actually flip the graph up graph upside down and say on the opposite end of acting out would be developing transparency trap um, honesty integrity um, presentness and the opposite of abusive attitudes and beliefs we could you know would be uh willing uh true love i mean it's it's true love willingness to sacrifice willing to put the other's need above theirs so we could actually graph healthy relationships kind of on the flip side of what we're talking about totally that might get a little bit more complex (laughs) so we're sticking into our quadrant of you know these are these are varieties of dysfunction when you're dealing with addiction right um so i i feel for everyone in that in that, but especially my heart goes out to women in this quadrant who are being invalidated and they don't know why and they don't know what to do about it and they don't have a language to describe their pain. Um, they know intuitively it's tied to the addiction or the past addiction. Sometimes they're told, or um, and oftentimes it's an addiction that he won't even recognize um, or acknowledge. Um, and yet I would these women there there's a lot of work for them the challenge for them is is a couple of fold one it is to really have strong internal boundaries against internalizing false messages that they are being fed on a regular basis by the person who should be safe and those messages, those messages very often are very toxic, are very damaging about them, their worth, their identity. And so learning how to uphold the truth of their own value in, a, in, a, in an intimate relationship where they're being devalued is an incredibly difficult. And ultimately, that's oftentimes, I'm, in my perception, oftentimes where women have to leave is because it is so toxic that they don't have the choice. They either lose their identity and their sense of their sense of self to that relationship or they have to leave it. But initially, and, and as far as how do they do the work, how do, how do they give hope to the relationship, give him an opportunity to change and still protect themselves, um, that one of the first things 
they have to learn to do is to develop those strong internal boundaries against internalizing false messages. And they need help to do that. They need, uh, they often will need counseling or other support, strong support. The other thing that they're going to need to do to help to gain clarity over what's happening in their situation is they have to look deeper into the dynamics of the interactions that they are having with their spouse, look be- below the content level, and look at the patterns. What it, what's hap- What is taking place? And identify the longstanding patterns that um, that will help them gain some clarity on um, what is what is destructive in that the way the way that their partner is engaging with them. Um, is he dismissive every time she brings up a concern? Does he, is he invalidating in that her her perspective, her needs, or her perspectives, or her opinions never hold any weight, any water? They're, you know, um, that then helps her identify that those are the problems that need to be addressed. But and from there, there is a little bit of a position. There, there's it's empowering to her to identify yep. okay now I start to see this is what needs to be addressed this is the problem it's not the fact that every time we talk about finances we fight it's how the fight is engaged with or, or things like that and so looking below the content and looking for those patterns um, will help her to gain a position where she can see what needs to change and also give her options for the marriage um, because these are not lost causes. Oftentimes, they, these relationships that um, they fail because the actual issues are not clearly identified. And ironically, they might even be pinpointed on pornography use, and he doesn't believe that's the issue. Um, she's pinpointing pornography use, but really the destruction is happening in the way that they engage as a couple. Right. Um, so those are two thoughts as far as what work can she do to gain empowerment and insight into her position and to protect herself. Right. And I think assessing for those attitudes through the process, both, you know, I mean, as clinicians, we should be looking for that. But I think just as you're going, you know, if you're listening to this in your own recovery process or you're supporting someone to be listening and and observing and seeing if those attitudes and beliefs are there, because, if it's really, if you're only so focused on the acting out behavior as the only measure, then what's going to happen is when that's extinguished and that could be, you know, oh, I've got six months sobriety or whatever the number is, then you can erroneously believe that you've hit the end of the road and that anything that feels off after that is your fault as the partner, right? That like, Mm -hmm. it's like, well, we're at the end of the road, so clearly any discomfort you have is a you issue. <laughs> and and so it, I think this can open up a new world for a lot of women to say, okay, like there's more work that I can expect to do in terms of my own internal boundaries and my own, you know, creating safety for myself. But I can also expect him to look at this and we can articulate this and start wrapping words around it. Because I, I don't believe for one second that any guy who has these attitudes having a great time. You know, he I mean, my experience, these these guys are they feel powerless. They feel they feel overwhelmed. They feel they want love and security and safety and a good response from their wife, but they aren't getting it because uh-huh. they're, you know, they're basically 
you know, pushing her away all the time and scaring her to death. And, and so it's good for everyone to confront these. This is not like one person's enjoying another person or enjoying life at another person's expense. I, I think everybody is suffering, but it's, it's important to have good ways to identify this stuff. So I agree with you, education, counseling, support. If you suspect that there's something that just doesn't feel quite right, it's likely there'll be something like this under the surface. Yeah, I, I appreciate you highlighted what I think is another litmus test for um, as far as attitudes is if you if a man has if they are if they are humble and they recognize the damage they have those low they're low in abusive attitudes and beliefs they are going to recognize that if they've you know they've been engaged in pornography or whatever deception for however many years that they're going to give their wife plenty of permission to continue her healing and and ask for ways to reassure herself and 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 not trust him for a good long time beyond what is maybe technically more his his immediate recovery or like his getting gaining sobriety he recognizes that that his quest if you will for re gaining her trust is going to be a long one beyond that he gives her that permission to to ask for what she needs ask and uh, to express distrust even when he is trustworthy because he wasn't trustworthy and she's still learning to trust him again he gives her that permission to take the time she needs to heal and he actively wants to engage in um in helping her in that versus someone who has um more of a destructive attitude about that they might even have a little bit of resentment look i had to do this sobriety thing you know now i'm sober and there is there there still is that blame and uh there's still that i did this for you and you still have issues what's your problem this is on you and so if you're getting anything like that those type of attitudes that um, what? How can you not trust me, or why don't you trust me? Now, early on, before there's any sort of recovery or there any sort of sobriety, oftentimes there's there is a there is a misunderstanding about trust. Yeah, for <laughs> in sure. In all all categories, but once there is some degree of sobriety, if there is low abusive attitudes, there's a generosity in giving her time and space and permission to di- to distrust. And if there isn't that, then there needs to be more work. Then there, there that's a clue, that's a cue into. Let's hone in on that a little bit more. Why doesn't he feel like she sh- like why does he feel entitled? Okay? There's a, the a, one of the uh, underlying beliefs that we're coming back to. Why does he in, feel entitled to her handing over trust or or behaving in a certain way um, that makes his life easier when he's caused all this damage. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, I just think if, if any woman's being blamed in this process, I mean, I think everybody should take responsibility, you know? So if, if as a woman, you're listening to this and, you know, you're, you're betraying your own values, you know, and, and acting in ways you don't feel good about, um, yeah, work on that. Take you know, take advantage of the opportunity to, to do some personal growth and become congruent. But if if his acting out, if his if your feelings and hurt and and pain 
basically toward the addiction or toward these abusive attitudes, if that's just being thrown back on you all the time and there's no responsibility on his part, you don't feel any real accountability, that's abuse. That's abuse. Like that's just, that. that's all it is. And and that has to be named as that because I think it was Stephen Stosny that said, he goes, my definition of abuse, he goes, I, I have a really strict definition of it, which is that you're basically diminishing the experience of another person. You're basically saying to them, like, you're not a person. You're dehumanized them. I love that. Right. And so, and so, you know, obviously, if that's your experience, if that's still going on on a regular basis, that has to be confronted. Um, or you're not going to have any relationship healing for sure. Uh, you might be able to go heal individually, but you'll do it at, from a safe distance from that other person. So in here, Kim, you, you talked about this gray area representing where we typically start to identify domestic violence, which is you drew this dotted line through the, um, you know, the right side of the quadrants there, the acting out high, acting out low, abusive attitudes high, abusive attitudes high. Like, so that, that section over there, can you talk more about that in terms of um, what you mean by that as far as where we start to identify domestic violence? Yeah, and I think everybody will put that line a little bit different place, um, sure. and that's where there there's definitely some ambiguity around that. Um, but what I wanted to, I guess, make clear is that is irregardless of acting out. Um, when there is, they may not be acting out at all, or they may be acting out a lot, um, and the the dynamic within the relationship when there is. Um, there, when there is a, a preponderance of power and control, um, w- 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 excuse me, when one partner is continually usurping power and control in the relationship, mm-hmm. um, and diminishing, I loved that definition, diminishing the, the contribution and the humanity of the other, putting themselves in that primary position of, of, usurping the power in the relationship through many all number of means that we can talk about not just physically right um it can be done and this is where i think there's a misconception usually when we think of domestic violence we think of battered women we think of a, a husband beating his wife up or uh throwing against the wall or and that certainly is without oh, yeah. a doubt um those are the major incidences of domestic violence but the domestic violence itself more often is this pattern of usurping power and control in the relationship. Very often through manipulation, through coercion, through suppressing that other partner, diminishing her, or it can be the other way, but most often it's, um, it's the husband is diminishing his wife um, and, and and her humanity, her right there. I, I really think of it as a human, human rights violations. Right. Is, right. is really what is going on here. And you can see how that naturally comes out of those abusive attitudes and beliefs of entitlement and superiority. And I, I have a right to this position or these benefits from you. And so I, because that's my right, my due, I, I have the right to, usurp whatever means necessary to put you back in into line and you see that playing out that could be sexually it could be physically it could be emotionally um 
there are lots of ways that 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 manifests. Um, and you again, you can see how that's a natural outgrowth of those abusive attitudes and beliefs. That's where that leads. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm sure there's more I could say about that, but no, that's that's super helpful. Um, so, yeah, we don't we want to recognize that that abuse um, isn't just you know a lot of I think a lot of abuse victims, um, you know they they sort of misdiagnose whether they're being abused or not because of this, you know, we see in the news, you know, very, very uh, dangerous and dramatic and, you know, measurable forms of abuse that, you know, 10 out of 10 people would agree is abuse, but then you've got these more subtle, like you said, experiences that are often done privately and that nobody really sees or experiences. And this is where women need to be empowered to have language and men too, you know, who are being abused, but but to have language to, to identify that this this is actually what you're feeling when you're feeling smaller and diminished and controlled and sh- silenced and shut down like that's that's abuse and that can happen in 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 the kitchen and ordinary conversations around something right it just it just can be part of the day to day and we yeah. want to make sure people understand um you know how to talk about these things um and I agree with with you Kim that like Anytime we're dealing with addiction and, and covert behavior, secret behaviors, there is abuse, right? That controlling someone else's reality, lying to them, manipulating them, not letting them see their own reality, that kind of stuff, you know, is abuse has abusive qualities to it. Like it's it's abusive behavior. And but but in terms of how we help people through that or what we do with it, um, we need to be able to break it down and really help them understand their specific experience. And that, that's why I love this grid. Um, and so if somebody's looking at this, you know, I can just imagine like a, a partner who's looking at this chart right now and maybe feeling a little bit overwhelmed, like, okay, I've kind of placed myself. So what do I do now? <laughs> what do I do with all this? It can be somewhat overwhelming to try and figure out where to start with this because I know that you're not saying, and I'm certainly not saying that, well, if you're in this category, you don't really need to do as much work, right? Like that's not, that's not the message at all. We're not categorizing these or ranking these by how much work you have to do. Um, Each one has- But there's a different kind of work. Exactly. Each one has its own type of work. Exactly. And so that's where I think we would want to direct people, right, with something like this is when you're looking at this- it's helpful to place yourself and give yourself, like you said earlier, an anchor or a starting place to say, okay, okay, this is, I think this is organizing my experience. Now I can bring this in and start to wrap language around it and talk about it with a therapist or with my partner or with my support system and, and start to really find my way through this. Is that what your intentions were with this? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, it, it's a, it's a process. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it, uh, sometimes it's a very slow process of, uh, for a woman to, to, to come to grips with the truth of her reality and to find where her power lies in that. What are my choices? I love that. And, 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 um, and so I would applaud even the smallest, even things like listening to this podcast or any, any action, um, oriented towards, um, growth towards learning towards identifying solutions are uh, 
that's powerful. Um, and you're on the right, right track, because I think it absolutely can be overwhelming. Like this is just too big. And, and oftentimes the, the, the reality is it is, it's too big to solve in a, in a day and too big to solve in a podcast or in a, in a, in a session or, or, um, or even, you know, in a week or so. And yet there is always hope there. You are on that right. You're on the right path. Um, keep, keep moving that in the, in that direction of learning and identifying your power because and if I can just speak to the ladies, yeah. ladies, you have so much more power than you are aware of. And I think part of that experience of being abused, if you will, we're going to use that word, is is the lie that we buy as women that we're not, that we have to accept a situation as it is and that we don't have options. That's the lie. And part of our empowering ourselves and finding solutions that are healing to ourselves and to our relationship and give, um, and, and, um, the family is, is to own that power and not be afraid of it. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That's a, that's a, such an important message to, you know, remind women that they are more powerful than they realize just by speaking up, even like you said, even just listening to this discussion on this podcast, even downloading and looking at this, this chart. I mean, all these things are movements toward getting more light and understanding, getting more clarity. Um, it's feet on the ground, it's movement and it's, it's so healthy. And it, and like you said, it isn't, it's empowerment. And so, um, in terms of adjusting expectations, don't don't get paralyzed and feel like you have to solve it all in this one moment here. I, I love what you're saying. Just keep moving, keep learning, keep asking questions, keep exploring. Don't go silent with this. Don't go silent. So often feel women, I, I've said this so many times and nobody's heard. I, 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 uh, I've got nothing new to say. I don't know who to say, but, uh, right. or I can't, I can't speak up. So much of this experience of being minimized relates to our, our own experience of having a voice right. and being able to be heard. And you're not alone in that experience. So keep speaking up, keep reaching out and get connected with, with, with the resources that you need. Um, and, and it is a process. It will take some time. Um, but no positive movement is, is insignificant. Just keep doing those. Yeah, that's fantastic. And um, I mean, there may be some situations like we've talked about where, you know, you might be listening to this and you are in, you know, more of a, a an unsafe situation physically or, or you know, where it's you're you're being exposed to or being subjected to a lot of, you know, violence or other kinds of things. Like that's that's definitely a situation where taking swift action and getting to safety um, is imperative. It's critical. Um, and so it's, we're, we're sp we've spent a lot of time today talking about more of the, some of the more harder to detect or subtle, more subtle sort of types of abuse that get, I guess, mixed up in addiction recovery. And so it can become very confusing to, to, to know like what's really happening. Is this just addiction stuff? Should I just kind of wait for it? Or is this abuse? Like, what is it? You know, and there are some some behaviors that, regardless of what's going on addiction wise, are just 
completely unsafe and you need to get to safety with them. And so if you're, if you're scared for your safety or your children's safety, then please, you know, reach out to a local women's uh, shelter. There's a lot of great resources in every community and make sure that you're taking care of yourself and get, get some help right away. Don't, uh, don't think that this will somehow get better with just another conversation or those kinds of things. Some of these things require that type of immediate action. So I always want to put that in there and just say, um, if you're feeling that, trust your gut, trust your feelings, you know, trust the spirit inside of you that's telling you like, this is not okay. It's not safe. And you can always back off and, you know, and dialogue and figure out where to go from there. But if you're worried about that, please, please be wise. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Absolutely. Because we know from data that, that, um, there is a strong correlation between addiction and domestic violence. Yes. There is a lot more women being battered, but you know, that kind of that extreme end if there's an addiction present as well. And so I appreciate that you addressed that reality for many women who may be listening as well. And my experience is almost always women's error is not overreacting in these type of things. It's underreacting when there has totally. been... And, and, um, especially when there's been a long history to normalize abusive behavior, um, if you recognize at all that that has been part of your journey, then again, the, the more often than not, your consideration of what is appropriate, you're way more likely to underreact than overreact, um, when it comes to safety, when it comes to what do I need to do to be safe for myself and for my kids. Right. And even if you've not been physically assaulted, um, recognize that the stress on your body and your emo- and the emotional strain of living under verbal abuse, sexual abuse, you know, these kinds of spiritual abuse, these different types of control um, is so damaging to your physical system and can even put you in a depression, which could, you know, even for some women where they become suicidal or non-functional, I mean, it, can, it can get to a place where it really breaks a person down physically. And so you don't have to be uh, physically hit. It can be a much slower, more degrading process where you feel physically broken down. And so if you think you might fall into that category, or you you wonder if that's you, then please have the courage to reach out and, and ask a professional, get some help. Women's shelters often have uh, low cost or free counseling and support lines that can help you identify where you are. And, and I love what you said, Kim. Absolutely. The underreacting is always the bigger concern. I rarely see women overreacting to this stuff. In fact, I wish they would overreact more because you just get so broken down. You just, you just start to think it's normal, and especially if you came from a family where you grew up seeing this stuff. It can just feel, feel like a normal you know, day at home. And, uh, yeah. And if you're not sure, because we don't expect you to have all the answers, if you're a victim of this type of extreme breaking down of your your sense of reality and your identity, you're not going to have, everything's going to feel really confusing, really fuzzy, yeah, really muddy. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, this is where you, they have national domestic violence hotlines you can call and just say, I don't know what I'm experiencing. Can I just tell you know, this is what I'm experiencing. And you can have somebody for free on the other line saying, no, this is, these are the patterns I'm seeing this. These are your options, giving you some, um, 
giving you some resources. Uh, I just Googled it. And there is a National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Perfect. Um, yeah, perfect. Yeah, don't wait. You don't have to... You don't have to set an appointment. You can just call and, and get some clarity about what's happening to you. Yeah. Thank you for looking that up. Yeah, that's that's perfect. And then if, you know, and on a local level, if you need to go get that help, um, I, in my experience, I, I know that most communities have something. It's, you know, and, and today with the internet and everything else, like you can, you can get resources so easily to get to safety. And so, Kim, yeah. uh, there's a lot here. We both have a lot of... Uh, passion and commitment to talking through this, breaking this stuff down, trying to educate and help people. I really appreciate your work on this and the ongoing efforts you're making to, to clarify this stuff. Um, just as we wrap up here, any, any sort of concluding thoughts that you would want any of our listeners to, to take in as they, you know, as we wrap up this episode? I guess I would end with a call for women and for men to uh, honor the humanity of each other. I think that what happens as those who are addicted or those who are engaged in abusive attitudes and beliefs, they, they, uh, like we've said before, they start to lose a sense of their partner's humanity. They start to lose that, a connection with her as a human being, which we don't talk about that experience very often. Or we don't have a language to describe that. And yet, I think we, we experience it very deeply. And I think that we cannot, as human beings, lose connection with someone else's humanity without losing a part of our own. What I see happening, especially with women who are victims, I'll use the word victim, of abuse for long periods of time is, well, with anybody who's a victim of an offense to their humanity, is the knee-jerk reaction is to do something or to feel something that dehumanizes the offender. And that may be mislabeling them or they're just abusers or defining them as something less than human. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a place for anger. And I think it can be really healing, especially for women who've been silenced for a long time to be able to give voice to that anger. But I, I think long term, it is fundamental to our healing um, and, and to our identity as human beings to allow space for everyone else to have their own humanity. And that whenever we engage in something that dehuman, any anytime we engage in an attitude or a behavior that dehumanizes or denies the human rights of someone else, then we are losing us. We're losing in sense, in a sense, some of our own humanity. I think that's foundationally where a lot of the the conflict and the trouble, not just in relationships, intimate relationships, but in even more global, if you look at what's happening in the nation and the world, um, issues take root. And so, so there's a very, and I'm going to call this a sacred space for those who recognize that what has taken place in their relationship from their person has been, has been detrimental to their soul, to their identity, to their, to their, uh, yeah, to their divinity. And 
there is part of the healing is finding a way to juggle or guess I guess honor two realities and one is to honor the impact of those wounds to be able to see and to name and to label those injuries which is a lot of what we've been talking about today is because it is so hard to be able to put a name to it or be able to label those very intimate identity injuries that happen when there is dehumanization or that those abusive attitudes played out in a marriage, a partnership that should be safe. Mm -hmm. And so healing is being able to honor the truth of the impact of those wounds and at the same time not falling victim or not falling into the trap of that is very common of dehumanizing that that individual in his error and I'm going to use his because we've been talking about sure. men and women, but obviously it goes either way. His error eventually coming to a place where you can see him and the wounds that he he literally is inflicting on his own soul, his own identity in what he's done to you. And that that is what I believe is a very sacred space. I just want to bring to light the truth that our healing as for those women who are listening, if you, if there's anything that we talked about today that resonated with you and that you've started to feel and identify that you have experienced these injuries again, going with that and honoring the impact of that, but to be cautious of being pulled into the trap of dehumanizing that person who did that to you because that is the knee-jerk reaction. We, and when totally. we're dehumanized, we retaliate with, dehumani- with dehumanizing them. And that might simply be labeling them by defining them in some way that's less than human. They're a monster. They're a villain. They're an abuser. They're, and that's all that they are. They're nothing beyond that. And that, that's never true. And so being able to honor the truth of that person, that human being, who inflicted those injuries is also human and um, honoring their humanity. And that is key, I believe for all of our healing. And yes, that's a call for a higher path and for better treatment than you were given. And I would, I would encourage you still to take it because it will be better for you and for everyone. I love that. And some and sometimes you have to do that from a very safe distance. Oh, absolutely. Right. Sometimes absolutely. sometimes you'll stay in the relationship and still do that work and sometimes you'll do it far away. But you're right, this is about your own healing and your own humanity and and keeping that intact. Like yeah, we're we diminish ourselves when we diminish others and that is and and that we can't perpetuate that cycle of of violence against humanity. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in understanding this whole, all of aspects of this, these quadrants and what, what is the dynamics that are happening, being able to hold on to those, that reality, that everybody involved in that is a human being who's hurting. Um, and I love that you brought up, I am, <laughs> that may be from a very far distance. Sometimes <laughs> a different country doesn't feel safe enough. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I, I totally get that. Right. Um, 
strong boundaries are have are completely yes are completely supported mm-hmm. and healthy and and empowering yeah this is fantastic kim i'm so glad we got to spend this time together it speaks to your own commitment to understand these very complicated and um nuanced issues we we live in a time of polarization where people want easy answers, quick fixes, sound bites. And this long conversation that Kim and I have had, I, I really feel I feel more enlightened. I feel more clear on some things. I've learned a lot. And I think that these are the kinds of conversations we need to keep having about these issues. And really, I think it does honor the nuances and the humanity and, and just the the struggle. And so everybody really gets a chance to um, get the healing that they deserve, and it comes through. It comes through exploring and learning and understanding these things in a deeper way. So, in a time where everybody's polarizing and getting to quick solutions, it's very refreshing for me to to have this dialogue with you, Kim. I really appreciate it, and um, I look forward to uh, continuing talking about this and and discussing this with you and others as we go along, as we better understand how to best help those uh, going through these very challenging issues. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Kim for joining me on the Illuminate podcast. What a fantastic resource. And I really do appreciate her taking the time and spending the effort to map this out. I love her intentionality. I love her thoughtfulness and uh, just grateful for the great work that she's doing. You can find Kim with the Life Changing Services Group. She runs Worth Groups for Women and uh, she's just doing some fantastic work out there. In my next episode, I'm going to interview Chad Ford. He's the author of Dangerous Love, and Chad's work is powerful stuff. He is an expert in conflict resolution. He's traveled all over the world working with different groups and helping resolve really difficult conflicts. And as you know, working through recovery, even just working through relationships and marriage and parenting and coworkers and family members, we're dealing with conflict all the time. And Chad has a fantastic model for helping us not only resolve conflict and find peace, but also reduce our own internal reactivity and fear and struggles that come out of conflict. So I'm just really excited to introduce you to him and the great work that he's doing. So stay tuned for that. And you'll probably be seeing more episodes more frequently from me on this podcast. I think I'm going to go to weekly. I've been doing every other week releasing these episodes, but I think I'm going to pick up the pace. I've got some great guests and some great content that I've recorded and that I'm going to continue recording that I'm really excited to share with you. So if you see more episodes popping up in your feed, well, that's why, because I'm creating more and I'm just really excited to share all this great information and not just keep it to myself. So, and once again, leave a rating on iTunes. It helps people find this podcast, leave a review, take a minute, jump on there and let me know what you think of this podcast share it with those you love. We want to get the word out and offer support and healing. You never know who might be needing this life-changing information. Thank you for your support. Thank you for all of the great work that you're doing in your life to be intentional, to work your own process, to heal your family, heal yourself. I see the work you're doing. I hear from you. I know how difficult it is. And I just want to offer encouragement that we're all in this together and it does make a difference. Thanks again, and I look forward to hanging out with you in the next episode.